now come to a time of reading God's word. We'll be reading Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, and my father's family have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling from my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word. And everybody, thank you. Uh, morning, everyone. If we've not met, my name is uh, Matt Full. I'm the vicar here. And um, it's a great joy to start the book of uh, Nehemiah. We were away with the staff for a couple of days, Thursday, Friday, and uh, James did a quiz, which had lots of fun questions. Uh, but this, this doesn't sound like it's fun, okay? But the, uh, one of them is that you had to approximate, uh, one of them was how many books of the Bible has we not preached on in the last 20 years of the church's life? It was more fun than that. I just need to um, uh, point that out. About, uh, what, 15? Is that the, I can't even remember what the answer was. 15? Anyway, uh, Nehemiah was one of them, so few. Um, we're, we're ticking them off, uh, slowly. And, uh, it's a much loved book of the Bible, so I'm not quite sure why we haven't got to it. But we are. So, uh, off we go. Let me lead us in prayer, uh, and then we'll look at it together. Almighty God, our great King and our Father, we thank you, we praise you, that you are the one who makes promises and you never fail to keep your promises. So Father, help us. Help us to pray in line with the truths of the Scripture. Would you be at work in us now? 
We ask, as you've said, that your word would not return to you empty. Please do your work amongst us this morning. Father, we pray, remember the promise you've made and be at work amongst us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I, th- I think actually Nehemiah is a much-loved book of the Bible. You may not know it so well, but um, uh, it's about g- God is building his kingdom through his prayerful, shrewd servants, I, g- I guess is the theme. But um, I-, I think it's the drama. It's just a good story. Uh, and uh, every episode, sort of every chapter, um, as, uh, as Nehemiah and the people, they're, they're trying to rebuild uh, Jerusalem, and it goes well, and then <gasps> goes bad, and... Um, uh, it goes well, and then <gasps> cliffhanger. You know, one of one of the one of the people is going to betray him. <gasps> um, and uh, it's, it's a good story. It's better than your average box set, uh, I reckon. And it's very helpful for you and for me because it's a book which very clearly holds together um, human activity and God's sovereignty in His work, or human planning. And at the same time, people's pleading in prayer. It's, once it's the most obvious thing that jumps out, I think, at a first read of, of the book of Nehemiah in its 13 chapters, 12 prayers. Before they do anything, they pray. And yet Nehemiah, that there's a hero in one sense of the book, the, the chief protagonist, uh, the Lord is the hero. Nehemiah, he's shrewd. Um, He's not a pastor or preacher, and that's good for most people. Uh, He's sort of an entrepreneur, and some people love that. But he prays and he acts. That wonderful combination. So it helps us, because sometimes I guess we can get a little tired theologically about that. God is sovereign, and we we pray to him, but we need to plan and, and, and make decisions, and how does that fit together? It's just a really long case study in both praying and being shrewd and wise and taking decisions. But as I say, I guess at a big level, the theme was God is at work building his kingdom, and he does so through prayerful, shrewd servants. That's how he acts, through prayerful and shrewd servants. Uh, To orientate ourselves a little bit, it's the last history book of the Old Testament, and I scribbled down a few dates uh, for those who are wondering quite where it fits in. So if you know your Bible history, God's people, they've they've split, they're divided, but God's kingdom is Judah. Uh, Finally, in the year 587, that gets destroyed by the Babylonians. We saw that earlier in the year in Isaiah. We got to Isaiah 39. So it's destroyed. God's people are wiped out by the Babylonians. Now, the Babylonians, their tactic is whenever they conquer a a, a region or a city, they nickel the elite uh, and they take them off to their capital and retrain them. So there's no one left to organize a coup. They're destroyed. That empire is destroyed a little later, 539, by the Persians. They say, well, that's useless because, you know, send the elite back and they'll make us some money. Uh, So it's a slightly different strategy. And so in Israel's history, you get these three waves of God's people returning to Jerusalem. The first, you can see the dates, under Zerubbabel. The second, under Ezra. This is the third wave of God's people going back to Jerusalem. Uh, Under Zerubbabel, it was 90 years earlier. 90 years God's people have been back in Jerusalem, but they've still not rebuilt it. It's still a shell. They've rebuilt the temple, to be fair, a very small version of it. But the so they're deeply vulnerable. Uh, at this point in world history, if you've got a city without walls, <laughs> you're useless. 
You're defenseless. You are deeply vulnerable. So it's a pretty miserable scenario we enter into. So Nehemiah recognizes this, and it's time to pray. And I guess that's the overwhelming thrust of chapter 1. It's one of the great Bible prayers. If we want to see the kingdom of God grow, we must pray. If we want the Lord to prosper the work of our hands, we must pray. If we want success in our ventures for him, we must pray. And chapter 1 is a wonderful model of how to pray. There's two main requests, but we'll work through it like this. First, let's look at Nehemiah first. So he's a servant who cares, uh, and then he prays. So briefly, let's look at verses 1 to 4. These are the words of Nehemiah, uh, son of Hakaliah. It's the month of Kislev, so it's Christmas time, uh, December, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. He's the great king of the Persian Empire at the time. Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. That's a responsible job. Like most jobs, he's got good points and bad points. Uh, The negative of being cupbearer to the king, you eat and drink all his food before he eats it. So if anyone wants to poison the king, you'd be dead. That's a downside. Uh, The upside, you're in the king's presence. You can whisper in his ear. Uh, and that is clearly going to be uh, influential here. Anyway, one of his brothers comes along uh, at Christmas time. Obviously, not Christmas time. But anyway, uh, December, verse 2. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. So they've come from um, uh, the heartland. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant. Hey, we've been back 90 odd years. What's going on in Jerusalem? And it's bad news. You can read in the book of Ezra that they had started to rebuild Jerusalem. But in the first year of King Artaxerxes coming to rule, uh, lots of uh, the surrounding people groups around Jerusalem had written to Artaxerxes and said, oh, they're rebuilding Jerusalem. You better stop them. They're troublemakers. And uh, a young green king was like, oh, I don't want any trouble. So the king had said, don't you dare rebuild Jerusalem. If you try, the weight of the empire comes against you. So it's a pretty grim scenario. Verse 3, uh, Nehemiah is told, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, thanks to your boss telling it to be broken down, Artaxerxes. Its gates have been burned with fire. Oh, they are, well, they're vulnerable. They've got no walls. Anyone can invade. But striking these words on the great trouble and disgrace. Shame, it's a term that will come up later in the book. Nehemiah's response to this news. When I heard these things, verse 4, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And uh, we'll get there next time, but chapter 2, verse 1 will tell us that this goes on for four months, that he weeps and fasts and prays and mourns. Now, it's not the main point. In one sense, we'll get there to the the, the guts of the prayer in a moment. But um, I don't know, what do you make of Nehemiah's response? I mean, he must have known sort of what was going on back home in Jerusalem. But he's confronted by the news and he, he collapses, really. Sits down and he weeps and he mourns and he fasts and he prays. I guess there's this different culture. And 
broadly in the Old Testament, that the distinction between inward emotion and outward expression is non-existent. <laughs> How they felt, they expressed it, they just let it all hang out in a way that most of us here don't. Uh, many Brits, we certainly don't. Uh, even those from Middle Eastern culture have been Britishized and uh, restrained it in a, a, a little bit perhaps now. But, but I read this, and I don't know about you, I feel a little bit unsettled and think, well, when was the last time I grieved like this over what the disgrace of God's people? When was the last time I sort of lamented and got really upset by the church in the UK and the condition it's in, or patterns of sin, recurrent flaws in our own church even? I think possibly my own sin, yes, makes me despair at times, um, but mourning over the state of God's kingdom, tears over relatively few people nationally coming to a saving faith in, in Christ. That made me dwell upon, I think it's a long time, I may be corrected, I think it's a long time since I've asked the staff team or indeed the whole church to fast over a particular issue, ask, no, we're not going to be told to, but um, to earnestly, look, we've got trouble here. Can we fast about this? That we're attempting something a little beyond our comfort zone. Can we fast about this? Oh. Now, you could easily think, oh, calm down. You've just gone on holiday and now you've got a bit of zeal. Don't go a little bit OTT with your OT expressiveness. Um, calm down a little bit. But I, I don't know. I just wonder when that becomes indifference. <laughs> and we don't care about the disgrace the shame of God's people and his kingdom. And there's got to be something to learn from the intensity of Nehemiah, hasn't there? Hasn't there? Nehemiah cares, so he fasts and he prays. Let's look at that prayer then. You get it in verses uh, 5 to 10, really, the prayer. The specific request comes in verse 11. Look, I'm going to chat to my boss, Artaxerxes the king. Would it go well? Uh, that's the specific request, verse 11. But he takes most of his time building up to that. These two, please. That's where we spend our time. Hear our confession. Remember your promises, okay? That's the guts of his prayer. Hear our confession. Remember your promise. Uh, and then we'll think how it applies directly to us. First, then, verses 5 to 7. Hear our confession. I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So that's what you do, isn't it? Okay, th things are bad. Who am I praying to? The Lord, the God of heaven. He's the great and awesome God. He's one who keeps his covenant of love. He never breaks his promises. Well, that's good. <laughs> uh, we're at a low ebb, but who's our God? This God. Let me remember who he is. Oh, but a problem is that he keeps his covenant of love with those who love him. And there's a problem because, well, verse 6, here's the request. Would your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel? And here's the first bit of the prayer. I confess the sins we Israelites including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. 
We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws. You gave your servant Moses. Please hear my prayer. We got it wrong. That's not enough. We really disobeyed you. That's not enough. (laughs) For decade upon decade, including my family and my descendants and all the way down to me, we don't obey you as we should, Lord. I don't know what you make of very wickedly, verse 7. We've acted very wickedly towards you. Have you ever said that in a prayer? I just, I'm asking myself, Lord, I have behaved very wickedly. And most of us think, no, I've never said that, but I've never done anything very wicked. Well, nor has Nehemiah, as far as we know. Not very wicked. But what do you mean by very wicked? I've just not honoured you. I've not obeyed you as I meant to. And Nehemiah says that's very wicked. And I wonder sometimes you don't really ever give great thanks for the forgiveness that we have through the Lord Jesus. And, and so did they, although they didn't quite know his name unless you realize your great wickedness. (laughs) It's hard to be very thankful unless you know you're in deep trouble. Sometimes it's good to look upon your sin in order to recognize how wonderful forgiveness is. I remember one occasion years ago uh, when I was a teenager living at home, uh, I... uh, Started to run a bath one evening, and uh, the bathroom was next to my bedroom. And in my bedroom, I had a TV. Oh, yes, in the 80s, oh, a TV in the bedroom, but only black and white. But uh, obviously, I was a spoiled child uh, and had a black and white telly in my bedroom. And um, something, um, who could open university or whatever was on uh, uh, the black and white telly, um, captivated my attention. And so I was, oh, it's just, and uh, forgot I was running the bath. And it wasn't, the baths weren't so, so clever as having escape valves and things in those days. So I watching whatever it was uh, on, on telly, repeats of the Moomins. And um, uh, the first thing I heard was a sort of scream from my mother. Mum and dad in the lounge downstairs, and she'd gone out to make a cup of tea. And clearly there was water dripping through various points in the ceiling. And, oh, you know, so, you know, going to the bathroom, oh, Oh, yes, got a lot of water. You know, I turned off the taps. Oh, it's a lot of water. Uh, quick, go run downstairs, help mum and dad with buckets. Yeah, I, I left a tap running. Um, and then, for how long? And you know, buckets, buckets, buckets before my father started to ascend the stairs. I'll sort of upstairs. Uh, but he didn't need to come upstairs because upstairs became downstairs um, as you know, half the bathroom and the sh- chandelier. <laughs> Light. Uh, I can't think of light fitting. What's the word I'm after? I can't even think lighting rose. Anyway, that thing. Uh, the light. The light just came down and everything came down. Half the bathroom came down and... Ooh. Oh. That might be in our family. Mum did the sort of hysterics. Uh, father was more of a... And in his kindness, didn't rip into me. Um, didn't, you know... Just an accident, Dad. Uh, yeah, it was a, son, there are two types of accidents, aren't there? Ones you can't prevent, 
that happened to you and ones that are your fault. There are two different types of accidents. Which one is that? Yeah, all right. Um, he didn't have a real go at me. But the thing about that was yeah, insurance claim, et cetera, et cetera. So we weren't allowed to do anything. So I just had to stare at this hole for a couple of months as we sort of tiptoed around the edges of the bathroom to use it. And there's just something, when you stare at the work of your hands in destruction for a couple of months, you don't need someone actually to really shout at you. You just look at it and think every day, I really screwed that up. Sometimes you just need to stare at it. It does you good. My mistake was very costly. Okay, yeah. Insurance paid up most, but in terms of the hassle, our sin is very wicked. And sometimes it is good to stare at it. We don't remember it. Of course, the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is he wash away all sin. Consciences are cleansed. We're not meant to keep on revisiting and revisiting the sins of the past. They're dealt with. But as we confess them, to look at them and think, that is bad. Actually, in my rejection of God and his ways, maybe I can honestly say that is wicked. But I keep on and on and on. And I confess it, and I move forward in the forgiveness and grace, knowing that my conscience is cleansed. I don't need to dwell upon the past. But when we confess it, it's quite easy to confess sin, isn't it? Like you might put in an expense claim. There's a few things there. Thanks for sorting that out. Dear Lord, I've done my A, B, and C. Thanks for forgiveness. And it doesn't cost us anything. Sometimes it's good to dwell upon our sin. The Lord respects, expects repentance where there is sin. Confession is, is meant to be, I guess, as extensive as the sin. If we've sinned against the Lord, we confess to him. If we've sinned against someone else, we confess to them. If it's done in the public arena, we confess publicly. And part of confession, of course, means that we're giving thanks at the same time, that the cost is paid through Jesus. I stared at that hole in our house for a couple of months. It did me good. It made me grateful for my dad's provision, for his wisdom in having insurance, for not raging at me. And when I dwell upon my sin, it does me good to remember what it's cost the Lord Jesus. And then I move on. Then I move on. If you don't acknowledge very wicked, it is quite hard to feel very thankful, I think. And corporately, but we need corporate repentance too. I've been reading about Athanasius. Uh, something I've got to do. Athanasius uh, uh, recently, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Athanasius was uh, Bishop of Alexandria in Egypt in the uh, fourth century. Uh, and that really was the heart of the Christian world then. And he was the big man. Uh, he was the, 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 the hero of the Christian church in the fourth century, Athanasius. Um, and uh, that was the center of Christianity from where it influenced the rest of the world. And now... Well, it's a bit like Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The church is warned there, modern-day Turkey. They failed to repent and they disappeared. The church in Egypt, the strongest in the world, failed to repent and now is at a very low ebb. Now, we must corporately as well acknowledge 
our flaws, our sins corporately and say, Lord, our only hope is in you. Please forgive us. Hear our confession, says Nehemiah. Hear our confession. And then secondly, remember your promise. Uh, remember your promise, verses 8 to 10, before he actually gets to his uh, specific request. Remember your promise. Verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. Here is the source of hope for Nehemiah, the promise that God had made. In truth, this is one of those passages you can sort of go through in great detail and say this verse refers to this in the Old Testament, this one, this one. Let me just give you one, perhaps the most obvious, Deuteronomy chapter 30, Helen, if you've got that. Um, Whereas Moses was told, when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with your heart, soul, according to everything I command you, the Lord will restore your fortunes, have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. He'll bring you back. No doubt, I think Nehemiah is thinking of Deuteronomy chapter 30, Lord, remember your promise. Remember your promise. It is, that is one of the most central little phrases in our prayer life, or must be. Lord, remember your promise. You've said you're going to do this. You've said you're always like this. You've said you will treat me like this. Remember your promise. He doesn't despair at their sin, his sin. He confesses and says, remember, you said when we apologized, when we repented, you'd bring us back. Or uh, some would know this. Uh, there's one stretch in, uh, is it, I don't know, people don't read Pilgrim's Progress anymore. And I sort of get it. It's a classic, and every Christian is sort of meant to read Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, even if you're not a Christian, it's, it's viewed as a key element of uh, English literature. But uh, in today's world of sophisticated literature, it's a bit sort of slap you around the face with its obviousness. But it is a classic. So there's one point in Pilgrim's Progress. Christian and his companion, Hopeful, they leave the path called the True Way, and uh, they follow a bypath meadow. Uh, do you see what he's done there? Um, leave the true way. And uh, because uh, the true way is sort of uh, is, is awkward and it's up and downy and bypath meadow just seems like a much easier uh, route to take. But eventually it becomes sort of full of thorns and thickets. They're like, oh, we've screwed up. Let's go back to the true path. But they get lost and they're captured by giant despair. Do you see what they've done? Uh, and um, uh, he, he takes them off and imprisons them in Doubting Castle. And so giant despair locks them up in Doubting Castle. It's a slightly more brutal era than ours, of course, when uh, Bunyan's writing it. So a giant despair, I'm not sure you'd have this, certainly not for children now. He imprisons them, he beats them, he says, you should take your own lives. Um, uh, they don't have that the kids' version, I think. But uh, it's, it's all a bit brutal. And then, ah, oh, after several days of being captured by giant despair in Doubting Castle, Eventually, Christian says, oh, I'm so foolish. I have a key in my bosom. Um, and uh, the key, it is called God's promises. And it unlocks any door in Doubting Castle. And so they take God's promises and escape their doubts and their despair. And you think, what point are you making there? Um, and it's as subtle as, as the book often gets. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, you know. 
it is sort of in-your-face obviousness. It's making, like, how often do we get that wrong if we're a Christian? I'm in this slough of despair. I'm not locked up in a castle, but I am just in the pits and think, how on earth and what on earth and my life is disappointing and things have gone wrong and how do we get out of this mess? And you reach for God's promises and you say, Lord, remember, remember, you have said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. You have said, I'm always working for your good. You, Lord, would I see it, please? I, would you help me trust that, please? You have, remember, Lord, your promise. It's one of those wonderfully liberating things about the Christian God. He says, feel free to shout at me. Feel free to plead with me. You can never frustrate me by your requests. Ask, tell me to remember. No need to despair. You turn to the promises of God. So Nehemiah, 90 years after the first exiles have returned back to Jerusalem, the city's still broken and in disgrace. He is gutted by this. He weeps about this, but says, Lord, remember what you promised. We confess. Take us back. And so verse 11, you get the specific request. Look, I'm going to go and speak to uh, Artaxerxes. Um, if he's in a bad mood, he can kill me. He's an absolute monarch. Give me his favor. Okay, two things specifically. Two things. Let me encourage you. Two obvious responses for you and me to take from Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, the first is perhaps the less obvious. The first would be this. Give thanks. Give thanks that you have a servant who prays for you. Okay. Give thanks that you have a servant who prays for you. Here in this prayer, Nehemiah seems to perceive himself as mediating in a fashion similar to Moses in the golden calf episode. There's a sinful people and there's a, a great God and, and Nehemiah is there saying, look, I, I, I'm pleading for everyone. I'm pleading for the whole nation here, God. Will you forgive us? We confess our sins. Will you remember your promises to us? It's a little less obvious in English translation than it would be in a, in a Hebrew text, but if, oh, you can put them up. You get some semblance of it, Helen, thanks. The, uh, when Moses is... Uh, uh, um, uh, pleading for God's people when they've rebelled against God in the wilderness. He's up the mountain with the Ten Commandments and they are making a golden calf and rejecting the Lord. Moses says, but Lord, these people, they're your inheritance and your people who you brought up by your great strength and your outstretched arm. And it's even more obvious in Hebrew, but, but Nehemiah basically says the same thing. Lord, these are your servants and your people who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. And Nehemiah is saying, I, I am pleading before you, God, like Moses pleaded before you in the past on behalf of the people. And we need someone to pray for us. And if you're a Christian, you know you have a much better mediator than Moses or Nehemiah. You have the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not Israelites in disgrace with broken walls. The covenant with Moses was glorious. There were promises and there were hope. And there was frustration too. The people kept on disobeying. We have one greater than Moses and greater than Nehemiah, who stands between us and a perfect God, 
and says, Father, forgive them because I've died in their place. Father, let's enact the plan we had before the creation of the world where I endure your wrath and I pay for all their sin. And would you remember your promise, Father, that the sins can't be punished twice? We have legal certainty that our sins have been paid for. We also have the hope that God will change us by his spirit dwelling within with a transformed heart. They lack both those things, that legal certainty and the promise of change in the Old Testament. But give thanks will be one response to Nehemiah chapter 1. Jesus is praying for you. I always find that enormously encouraging. It's quite easy to say, Nehemiah chapter 1, we should all pray better, and we should all pray better, and we should all pray more, and we should all pray more. And my prayer life isn't good enough, and neither is yours. And we know that, and we can get better. But it's also good to know Jesus is praying for us. <laughs> but then last, of course, pray like him. Pray like Nehemiah the servant. Pray before we act. Plead in line with God's promises. I mean, we can pray. We'll certainly do so on Wednesday night when we gather to pray, Lord, Jesus said, I will build my church. Remember your promise. He said the gates of hell can't prevail again. Remember your promise. Please, Lord, build your church. Individually, you said, you'll never tempt me beyond what I can bear. You said, you've promised me forgiveness when I confess my sins to you. You've said that peace can guard my heart in the midst of the greatest of trials. Lord, you've promised justice. Remember your promises. Remember your promises. So pray, like give thanks that we have one better than Nehemiah. But remember the promises of the Lord and pray. Don't languish in doubting castle or in despair. Remember the promises of God that he has made. Don't get upset if he doesn't answer things and he's not made those promises. Don't get confused on that. But the promises that he's made to you are many. And so feel free to say, God, Lord, Father, remember. Remember what you've promised. I confess my sins before you. We do. Remember your promises. Build your church. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, thank you and praise you that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ extraordinary promises. We know they all find their yes in him. We know that any promises of the scripture cannot fail. Lord, we pray, remember your promises towards us. Father, for some of us uh, here today, perhaps we, Father, give us peace. Please give us peace that can guide our heart. Help us to be honest and real and specific as we confess our sins individually and corporately. And then, Father, please build your church. As we've sung already, we can trust that you'll hold us fast. Father, help us to trust your promises. Plead them back to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.